This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two amazing human beings, Paul Jaceley. Hello. And Tia Vasiliu. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. We have a killer topic coming up after the break for the episode. But before we get to that, let's talk about the thing we talk about every week, and that's comic books. Paul, how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you. Uh, I've been good. I'm enjoying the uh, holiday weekend here in the United States, Memorial Day weekend. Um, and Ooh. I've spent the time this past weekend reading some comics. It's been fun. So uh, nice. a cu- couple highlights I want to mention. I did read Love and Rockets number five. This is the new issue. And, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away for people that haven't read it yet. But it's another perfect issue. I feel like every time an issue of Love and Rockets comes out, it's like seeing an old friend you haven't seen in a while and just pick up right where you left off and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so That's this awesome. issue, this issue, the Jaime Hernandez stories are about Maggie and Hopi. It's about them now, women in their you know late 40s, early 50s, their relationship together, how they interact with each other. And then he intercuts that with flashbacks when they first started dating back when they were teenagers. And just to see the parallel story he draws, where you see the same characters over a span of 35 years interacting in a similar way. And you can see how that past relationship still is relevant to them now as adults. And there's like one panel in this issue that like really hit home for me. It was like, Reading those stories, I always relate to Maggie more, but there's one panel where he draws Hopi, the character that always seems to be a little bit mean to Maggie. He draws her in a way that made me sympathize with Hopi in a way I never had before. And I just love the fact that reading this comic book for years and years, it's been going on for 35 years, there's still always a moment where I fall in love with it all over again. And that happened in this issue. That's awesome. Um, I also want to mention very briefly, I did read Justice League No Justice numbers two and three. I'm enjoying this book. It's a four-issue miniseries kind of resetting the stage for the Justice League. Uh, it's all sorts of crazy cosmic superhero stuff involving Brainiac, uh, Brainiac 2, uh, giant celestial giants called the Omega Titans that show up. Crazy stuff. <laughs> but sure. I, I really I really enjoy it because uh, on this issue, issue two, you had art by Francis Manipal, who also did issue one. And you have issue three is done by Riley Rosmo. So they're very unconventional artists for big superhero stories. And I love it when DC does that. And let's let's uh, somebody draw the Justice League that doesn't normally fit the typical superhero style. Yeah. I just want to uh, critique that, though. It seems like they didn't have enough time to do it because the art looks really rushed, especially Rosmo's art in issue three. There's some panels that you can tell like he didn't have enough time to really finish. And it kind of distracts from the story as well as the fill-in artist, Marcus Toe, whose style doesn't fit with either of those guys. Had to do a couple pages. But it is nice to see them do a story like that with unconventional artists. So that's just want to mention those. I am enjoying that series. I'm kind of excited to see how it wraps up uh, this week. What's it, one thing that's interesting, I think, about Riley Rosmo on these DC books recently, I think he's been doing DC books on and off for the past couple of years, yeah. is that his style has become really synonymous with like creepy, weird stuff whenever mm-hmm. they need to do that in, say, like a Batman book, which is pretty much all that I've seen him in. Um, <laughs> right. And I'm guessing this Justice League book, I don't, did they kind of embrace that with his art style or like, is, is this a weirder book in any way? It, it is a strange book and you have an assortment of characters, like the Justice League is broken up into four different teams and there's like weird pairings in the teams, like one of the teams has Martian Manhunter and Starro the Conqueror, like the giant starfish in it, uh, which is what? kind of strange to see. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there's one team that has like Wonder Woman, but the demon is in it. And like when he draws the demon, it definitely kind of leans, leans into these sort of, uh, you know, demon-esque features of the character in Rosmo's art. So I think it, right. it, his, his art does work with the story. It just kind of feels rushed at points. And I guess 
when you're doing a first year miniseries, it kind of seems like you should have had that stuff figured out. What's funny is Rossmo isn't even wasn't even solicited to do that issue. Francis Manipal is supposed to do all four issues, so it's pretty oh. obvious that they ran into a time crunch and had to get somebody to fill in. So it's gotcha. interesting that they did go with someone like Rossmo, who again is an unconventional superhero artist. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, Tia, how have you been? How have comic books been? So on. Uh, well, this weekend is the dance recital, the big spring dance recital studio where I coach uh, the competition team. Ooh! So <laughs> it's been a week of tech rehearsals and things. Uh, not super a lot of time for comic book reading, but I did read Dr. Afra number 20 because mm-hmm. I noticed that only Cy Spurrier is credited as a writer now. Oh, I didn't wait. know that was happening. I well, I knew that Gillen was going to eventually go off the book. I just didn't realize it was going to be so soon. I thought he was sticking around until for a while. I didn't know either. I and um and as some of you might know, I was a little bit not entirely on board with the like Cy Spurrier taking the wheel of Doctor Afra because mm-hmm. although I have liked Cy Spurrier books i i really was not a huge fan of his most recent creator-owned um angelic i just felt Mm -hmm. was like a weird uh sort of tone deaf take on something that's kind of already been done and he's like why don't we do it with animals that talk i don't know anyway was not a fan (laughs) uh and so i was like "Mm, what's he gonna do with dr afra my beautiful precious like you know space wife and uh it was actually fine i i needn't have worried it was great it was seem it it felt like dr afra it was all the things that you want uh for the record tia's notes say size burrier i'll allow it (laughs) i tried to find that gif um from community but uh yeah you know yeah yeah Mm-hmm. So yeah, Kev Walker is still doing the art. So it's you know, and and the writing is like it. It's the right tone. It's it's very Doctor Afra, and I actually really loved this cover by Ashley Wrights. Um, so that was nice to see. Anyway, uh, you know, <laughs> the the book the story is kind of told with the the premise that okay so afra is on a she's imprisoned and she uh, there was an incident. And so she's being interrogated about the incident. And uh, in her Afro way, she's like, you know, very uh, sarcastic. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you could totally see her like manipulating everyone. And and as the uh, as she as she tells her story, you could see all the places where it's like, okay, what do you have up your sleeve here? And the interrogators are also picking up on that. So uh, I don't know that she's going to be able to weasel her way out of this one in the way that she hopes. But of course, that's what really makes a good story when you take a character who's really good at doing things a certain way and then not let them do it. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I really like that. I really like that that Scythe Burrier is not going to let her get away with being Afro just because it's charming to like you could totally I would read that but it's actually kind of you know going a little bit deeper and pushing her to make her kind of I don't know figure out another way and because she's like in she's like in deep shit right now because you know her MO is to basically like fuck people over and then hope that they don't come after her so Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. 
just because you were able to pull that off with Darth Vader, which like, you know, on a long enough timeline, are you really able to pull that off with Darth Vader? I don't know. (laughs) So uh, she's also done that with the murder bots. um, And I don't think that she's going to get away with that either in the way that she's hoping. So then there was a neat twist at the end where it's like, you know, she kind of has to eat crow, maybe also other things if this character shows up <laughs> at, to, you know, save the day for her in some way, which like we all kind of hope that that's going to happen, I think. And uh, yeah, we love, throw a love interest in there. That would be great. That's, she needs that complication on top of everything else. Of course. <laughs> I like. I would like to see her beg for some forgiveness. Well, who knows? Cy Spurrier, you know, he's he's taking the wheel. We'll see, right? <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I kind of hope that he, like, drives her off a cliff in some spectacular fashion because I think she'll be okay, but I really want to see how she gets out of it. Right, right. Uh, well, for me this week, um, I read a whole bunch of books. I actually actually sat down and for, like, five hours of, of straight comic book consumption um i i spent an entire night it was a great feeling um but the one thing i want to talk about is this book that i picked up off of a ton of different recommendations from people and maybe i'm very very late to the game on this but i read extremity number one through 12 which is the whole series uh this is by daniel warren johnson and i didn't write down who did the colors for this book and i feel like an asshole because honestly I need to find this colorist, but uh, still, this is uh, Extremity number 1 through 12 from Image Comics. All I can say about this book is holy shit. That's it. I mean, honestly, this is such a cool fantasy dystopia of like where it feels like Mad Max meets some high fantasy story, but everything's powered by flying gasoline ships and there was a war of some sort and the world is shitty and now we've got these two warring factions. Um, The story opens with this beautiful, terrible moment where people die, people lose limbs, which is kind of the focus of the story, extremity. Um, Daniel Warren Johnson, in the back of the book, (laughs) he says his inspiration for this book was, you know, his greatest fear, which is losing his right hand. And as an artist, you know, that would totally just destroy his life. And so he decided to write a character that was all like that. And I really don't want to go through the plot of this book because on the whole, this book is fucking amazing the coolest thing happens in issue 11 where there are two two page spreads in a row that make me like shudder and cry with absolute awe because it's it's like orc stain level detail but for in two page spreads i like honestly spent probably 10 minutes just on the first half of issue number 11 of this book because there was so much he put into it and i can't even imagine how he was producing this month to month he must have done this way way in advance um, in order to meet deadlines because the amount of just absolute precision and detail in this whole book from issue to issue is astounding i mean if you want some seriously cool action-packed pretty gory really fucked up heartbreaking story like extremity one through 12 i can't recommend it enough this is a book that i grabbed all in digital and I'm, i think if it comes out in a collected hardcover i'm gonna get this because it's it would be just i can't imagine what it looks like in person because i never actually saw the single issues but <laughs> the digital versions were fucking mind-blowing so who this book Interesting. so yeah who publishes this i'm sorry oh this was published by image okay um and I can't, I, like, it feels so Mad Max in a lot of ways, which is really cool. Yeah. Just, like, the the feeling of the peoples living in this kind of, like, barbaric former future world where they don't know enough about anything else that goes around them. They just know how to fix 
kind of fix the quote-unquote magic machines that they have. Sure. Um, yeah, and they introduce some really interesting characters throughout. And man, I, I, I love this book. I can't believe I didn't buy this when it first came out because I was like, Extremity, that looks stupid. And just like <laughs> other books that I've done that with, I was completely proven wrong. The other one of notable exception would be uh, Sweet Tooth, where I was like, a kid with anther- antlers, that looks stupid. And then, of course, <laughs> years later, I read it and I fucking cry my eyes out because it's such a beautiful book. So what I'm trying to say is don't <laughs> underestimate comic books just because they think they look stupid. <laughs> or just read the ones that Mike tells you look stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah, if Mike says a book looks stupid, you know it's a good choice. Uh, Damn, he's judging them by the covers. That's great. <laughs> But, you know, enough about what we've read recently. Um, I mean, otherwise, I've been good. I could say that. The, the weather here in New York has been hot and, and great, I guess, but also terrible. But let's, let's talk about comic books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are released on May 30th, 2018. What are you both excited for? Let's start with you, Tia. Well, Vagrant Queen number one is coming out from Vault Comics. Uh, if you listened to my not an interview with mags you know that some of it got cut out because of audio gremlins but we the part that got got cut out was us talking about vagrant queen i'm so excited i can't even say it and (laughs) uh it's being written by mags visaggio and art by jason smith and it's basically about a deposed child space queen who has to return to this hostile kingdom years later for reasons and it just it sounds awesome it's just the kind of book that i think is max is gonna just knock out of the park and of course vault comics is like knocking everything out of the park so really you know this is all good i i mean to go with that vault comics i don't think there's been a vault comic book that i've picked up that i didn't like i know which is why i've refused from i've refused to pick up any new ones because i'm reading too many fucking vault comic books (laughs) (laughs) they're taking over the world man i don't know what to tell you will it uh will it break my heart because i'm reading uh eternity girl right now by mags and it's breaking my heart every issue no i know right every single (laughs) issue is just like gut punch i think this one is going to be a little more like fun space opera but i'm sure i'm sure it will still have its touching moments because i feel like mags is really good at at throwing those in there and and so even when you think that like we're all having a good time all of a sudden you're like oh (laughs) we're all having a bad time feelings (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah cool paul what are you excited for this week um my choice this week is kind of interesting because it is Aquaman Jabberjaw special number one. This is another one of the DC comics and Hanna-Barbera crossover one shots. Way back when they announced they're going to be doing more of these, I joked on Twitter that I really hope they do an issue where Aquaman meets Jabberjaw. And here it is. They're finally doing it. So this is the one shot. Wow, they should send you comps. Right? It was my idea. This um, is Paul's way of saying that he got a job working for DC Comics, guys. This is his last episode. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, the one thing I would do is have Aquaman team up with Jabberjaw. Um, right. This is written by Dan Abnett, art by Paul Pet, uh, Pelletier. Um, and if you don't know who Jabberjaw is, I assume you know who Aquaman is. Uh, Jabberjaw is based on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon from the late 60s. He is an anthropomorphic great white shark who plays the drums in a rock and roll band called the Neptunes in the year 2067. What? Okay, and him and Aquaman are going to kiss, right? I, hopefully. If, if, if I had my druthers, that's how the issue would end. Yeah. 
<laughs> He's an anthropomorphized shark that plays the drums. Right, in a rock and roll band well, called what, the Neptunes. What so, instrument yeah. would you have an anthropomorphized shark play? Yeah, I don't it know. Makes total sense. Do, <laughs> it would be hard for him to play like guitar or something. I I guess I. <laughs> If he's got to be in a band, I guess that's what. Because you can like you can wrap your fins around some drumsticks, but you can't get all the chords with your fins. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So it's limiting. So he found his niche on the drums. Yeah. um, He's a big shark. He's going to meet Aquaman. I'm very excited for this book. And if that wasn't enough, there's a backup story in this issue that'll be a Shazam meets Captain Caveman team up (laughs) written by Jeff Parker with art by Scott Collins. I mean, this like this book was written specifically for me. Can't wait. It probably oh says to Paul in the yeah. like on the first page. I sure hope so. Open dedication, two page spread. Paul's head photoshopped onto Superman's body <laughs> for Paul. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, that just killed me. I'm like crying over here. <laughs> um, read read some Eternity Girl. It'll cheer you back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Let's yeah. let's just bounce that right. Let's put the Red Bull in the vodka and have a good night. <laughs> so okay, for me this week, I'm really excited about a book that's a bit darker than Aquaman and Jabberjaw I'm guessing um <laughs> this is know. the wilds this is the wilds number three by Vita Ayala and Emily Pearson with colors by Marissa Louise I've been reading this book since you know we had Vita and Emily on the show and I'm really digging it like Emily's art just slays me every issue like I just wanted I want like a, a wordless issue of someone running through a forest and you just see hundreds of these like wilds or aberrations or abominations or whatever they call them in the book just because the the styles that she comes up with of people with fungus growing out of their face and necks and arms and vines and flowers it's it's gorgeous every single issue has got like a handful of unique uh, abominations in it and it it's stunning every time and it, it also helps that the story is really cool um there's a lot of mystery and a lot of like um i guess erratic feeling throughout the entire thing the the story that's that's picked up from issues one to two is there's something amiss out in the wilds. Maybe the abominations are grouping together, which is very out of the regular as far as these runners are concerned in the book. And if you're not reading the wilds, oh boy, there's a lot to unpack. You should just go listen to our episode with Vita and Emily where they talk all about that book. But ultimately... There, there's a lot of really cool things happening in this book. It doesn't feel like your standard zombie story. And quite honestly, it's not. <laughs> Issue 2 opens up with a big like slap in the face to, this isn't a zombie book um, and in a really, really cool way. And the one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed about this series so far is the backup like stories that they do at the end of each issue, which is like a focus in on one of the runners. Um, these people that travel between the various fortresses across the countryside um, where people can kind of live and survive um, and away from these abominations. And uh, there, there's just a whole lot going on in this book. And even with two issues, I feel like there's so much more that can be unpacked. And so I'm really excited to, to get further in this story. And issue number three should be more touching on the uncertainty that's out in the wild more so than usual. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I th- something I think that is so fundamental to the zombie genre is the aesthetic. And I think it was so smart for them to be like, instead of looking for, I don't know, a narrative twist on the zombie story, like an aesthetic twist on it is just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. When it, and just the way that it manifests is such a cool thing too. like it. it it's almost beautiful in a lot of ways, <laughs> except for the part where the ab- abominations are trying to kill you. Well, yeah, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I, I've been really enjoying this book. So everyone should go out there and buy this. Support Vita and Emily because they're doing fantastic work on, on this series. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we have a very special guest. Someone who's, who knows a whole heck of a lot about comic books. And is here to talk to us about a very special thing going on in Seattle. For our show this week, we have a very special guest. Ben Saunders from the University of Oregon is here to talk to us about a really cool thing that he's doing in Seattle right now, which is in Washington. Ben, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am a professor of English at the University of Oregon, where I founded the world's first minor in comic studies. I'm pretty sure it was definitely the first one in the USA anyway. Okay. Um, And I'm the curator the chief curator there's a big curatorial team but i'm the chief curator for the marvel universe of superheroes exhibition at mopop in seattle right now as well awesome awesome so this in this exhibit is like this monstrous thing i it's funny we were at emerald city comic-con where we where paul met you and we went to the mopop exhibit there they had a big star trek thing did you guys take over like the two floors for the star trek exhibit uh, yeah, it's it's actually quite a bit more space than the Star Trek exhibit. It's the biggest um, physical show they've ever had at Mopop. Wow. No way. Uh, about 300 individual items or pieces um, the, uh, in total. And that's including things like the sculptures that we had commissioned, the original art, the props from Marvel Studios, um, and a lot of what we call infographics and media tables, that kind of thing. Very cool. And and you get so you said you have props and things like that from movies. Is, is there like any specific movies that you pulled from for that? Oh sure. So um, we have um, we have movies and TV shows represented. So okay. obviously one of the things that people got most excited about just recently we have. Um, the three of the costumes from the Black Panther movie. We have the Panther costume itself and um, Okoye's costume and Shuri's costume, including the the cool um, punchy gloves, you know, the sort of... <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. Um, we have uh, stuff from... We have Luke from the TV shows. We have Luke Cage's bullet-riddled hoodie, um, which was a, uh, something that I was really excited to be able to display. Definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah, we have... Um, Oh, uh, what am I forgetting? Um, from uh, Sony, were really great. They gave us the um, uh, one of the costumes from Spider-Man: Homecoming. They actually gave us the one, the, the sort of uh, DIY costume that Peter has to pull together when Tony takes his um, suit away. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so that kind of you know pseudo Ben Riley Spider-Man costume. Um, and we have some of uh, some things from the earlier movies as well. You know, pumpkin bomb from. One of the Tobey Maguire movies, <laughs> the, yeah. the Goblin Mask, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's in combination with, I mean, Spider-Man display is actually one of the richest and most detailed uh, because we have things like the last three pages from the death of Gwen Stacy, the um, Amazing Spider-Man 121, the actual original art from oh, wow. from, from that, that book, um, as well as... Um, uh, pages by Ditko, Ramita, McFarlane—you know all the um, the artists you would probably think of if you would if you're thinking of um, 
the most influential um, Spider-Man artists of the last, you know, 50 years. We have right. uh, something by each of them, including a page from Amazing Fantasy 15, which we borrowed from the Library of Congress. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, actually, that page, um, so that's a good story. Um, I wanted to borrow the whole origin story from the Library of Congress. It's 11 pages, as you probably know, and we could have put that into one um, gallery space, but they don't loan out the whole thing ever. Uh, they will only lend out a page at a time, and they will only lend it for a few months at a time. Mm -hmm. And if other pages have been loaned recently, they will... Um, uh, they will, they'll only, they, they make, they take them back and they only let you have them on this sort of three month rotation. They sort of let them rest before they will load them out again. Mm. So initially I wanted the last page. I wanted the, uh, when they realized they wouldn't let me have the whole thing, I thought, okay, well let's have with great power. There must also come great responsibility. Let's mm -hmm. have that page. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but that one had been apparently, um, loaned out fairly recently and they, they wouldn't let me have that one. So I chose page seven, which is the first time that he appears in costume. And I'm actually now really glad that I chose that page because as I was showing people around the show, I realized, you know, looking at this, given what we know about how this was created, there's a brief moment in human history where that drawing of Spider-Man was the only drawing of Spider-Man that ever happened, right? It's the first one. Right. So there's a brief moment where that was the only drawing of Spider-Man in the world. And we have it right, right there on the wall. Wow, that's <laughs> sorry. Go ahead, Tia. <laughs> oh no! So when you were putting together your checklist, were you thinking about uh, a specific narrative that you would hope people would walk away from? Like, are you emphasizing uh, the connection between the movies and the comics, or were you trying to give them a sense of um, kind of what you were just talking about? How important some of these, you know, first appearances or original drawings were to the imagination, the public imagination, this character eventually enters into. Uh, I don't know. Could you talk a little bit about how, like, kind of how you, what what narratives you were keeping in in mind as you put together the the show? That's a really excellent question, Tia, because it's actually um, it was one of the biggest challenges we faced. Um, the Marvel universe is woven out of story elements that are 80 years old. And actually the Marvel Universe is a Marvel multiverse that involves different iterations of the same characters and story arcs across multiple different media platforms. And it's also the story of the men and women who created the characters. So, um, and I perhaps over ambitiously, but it felt like it was an ambition that was suitable to sort of the operatic sweep of the subject. Um, I wanted to try and tell all of those stories in some way. So mm -hmm. I wrote a, um, an 80 page illustrated script, which was kind of a wish list, um, right at the, that's how we, we, we began. Once it was clear, um, that the, what my job was going to be, um, I wrote this 80 page script, uh, that had, um, b different beats in it that would tell different versions of these stories. And the idea was to be very comics centric, um, because that's what I'm most interested in. I mean, you know, I go to the movies and I like the movies, but I am, I'm really a, a comics person. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, so it was comic centric, but I wanted to be able to move across different media. So, for example, with a single character like Spider-Man, like like that gallery I mentioned, um, each wall would sort of have a different function. There, there, there's a there's a kind of um, you don't need to tell people the origin story, right? So, but you might need to tell them something about who Steve Ditko is. So I, I I would just sort of chose each in each gallery. I made different choices about what struck me as, um, and I mean, I really just sort of allowed my own taste to guide me from that point of view as to what aspects of the, the multiple different versions of the Marvel narrative we might fo focus on, I was going to emphasize in each room or around each character. But the larger structure of the show is sort of loosely chronological in that we, we begin, we actually begin with sort of the prehistory of the superhero with pulps and newspaper strips um, one of the nicest items that you see when you first walk in is um, an Alex Raymond Flash Gordon original from 1936. Oh, wow. um, that um, so that's and and there's a lot of. I was working with a really brilliant design team, this Berlin-based design team called Studio TK, and um, that I they were not comics fans uh, to start with. I, I was sort of bombarding them with information for the last 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> sending them images and, and, and emails. But they were really good at taking a large amount of what you might think of as the nerd lore um, and, and reproducing it in um, visually accessible ways. So we begin with, you know, here's a kind of... Actually, we begin with a movie, which, which does a sort of a seven-minute history of Marvel the company. Mm -hmm. um, so beginning with, um, you know, Goodman in the 1930s and the, uh, the original superhero boom of the 40s and then um, Wortham and the moral panic around comics in the 50s and the contraction of the industry and then Stan and Jack in the 60s. We do a kind of a seven-minute version of Marvel history um, that, that took, that just to give people a sense of how this almost, you know, sort of a mom-and-pop kind of outfit um, with a really a very small number of people working. I mean, when, you know, um, in the late 50s, early 60s, this is a company that is only allowed to distribute eight books a month. And this is a really right. pretty small, small operation. And now they are one of the most recognizable media franchises in the world. So how did that happen? Right. So we tell that, <laughs> yeah. tell that story in, in, we try to tell us of a seven minute version of that story. And then as you go through the show, there are plenty of opportunities to sort of dig deeper and get more information on aspects of creators or characters through the media tables. And I also repeat some of those main beats. So here are the, here's the, here's popular culture before the superhero ever came along. Marvel were great about letting us actually, you know, have Flash Gordon in there. They, it, they, they realized that they didn't have to, I could tell this story more effectively if they didn't insist that we pretended that the Marvel Universe doesn't exist in relation to anything else. Right, um, <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and, and so it's more powerful when you then walk into a gallery and you see a copy of Marvel Comics number one from 1939. If you know why that comic was um, a big deal in 1939. If you know how new the superhero concept is, and um, 
So, you know, that's, it seems to have worked. I mean, people are, are blown away the moment they walk in because they're given that sense to, of, of some of the rarity of some of the things that they're about to see. Mm-hmm. They've already been told um, a kind of a, a, a story um, that they then are going to see little beats from again. And every time you see it, it's like it makes you feel smarter. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I know that. It's because, you know, we just told you that. But now, now <laughs> you could say, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had things like, you know, the, the Marvel Comics number one, but then Jim Halpern was willing to lend um, the only surviving page of original art from uh, Marvel Comics number one, and we could put these two things side by side. Uh, so that's that was a great historic opening, and then we moved very quickly into the characters that people know. I'm giving you a really long answer to <laughs> the question. I'm sorry. I'm going to st- yeah. start. I, does that sort of answer the question? Yeah, because you know you do sometimes. I think see pop culture exhibitions, and and they're just sort of like, hey, here's some fun stuff that you like, and this show seemed to have more of a. I mean, it sounds snobby to say an intellectual point of view, and I don't mean it in a snobby way, but just in a like, there's, we're trying to do something a little more than just like, hey, kids, comics. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, God, I, I didn't want to do that. And right. <laughs> I, I, I've done, this is my fifth show now. Um, and I've had some time to think about um, the challenges of trying to present not just uh popular material in a museum context, but comics present some very specific problems from the display point of view. Um, Mm. You know, actual old comic books, I, you know, I love them. I, I, they have a, they, they exert a almost hypnotic compulsion over me, but, (laughs) um, but they don't necessarily display terribly well. Uh, they're small, so, right? so it's mm-hmm. like trying to build displays out of collections of miniatures if you're focused just on um, old comic books. At the same time, I didn't want the movie material and the big spectacle stuff to just end up taking over from the comic books. So mm-hmm. um, so original art is the, is the way that you can do that, I think. I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's um, most people just haven't seen a lot of original comic book art from the classic era of Silver Age Marvel. Mm-hmm. Marvel mm-hmm. themselves um, didn't keep it. You know, it all was returned. What the, the pages that had not been stolen were returned to the artists in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So, and then those artists generally sold th- uh, sold the pages that were returned to them. So, all of this material has been in private hands. Um, so if you can find the, 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 those, those kinds of collectors, and if they are willing to lend, then you can show people something that they really haven't seen before, but which is still fundamentally comics, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what people haven't seen is, I mean, even if you've read, you know, um, your favorite Silver Age Marvel books till the covers fell off, and even if you own the reprints, um, what you, what you haven't, the, the printing technology of, uh, was so cheap um, that an enormous amount of visual information that a lot of the artists are putting into those black and white originals just doesn't make it to the printed page. Right. So even for a real hardcore fan, 
if, you, if they're looking at a piece of original art for the first time, they're blown away by the kind of uh, detail that you can that you can see there. So that give, for me, it was the original art that, that that takes the show to the next, and not having just a lot of reproductions and a lot of, you know, hey, you know, maybe there's actually, you know. The, the the smell of Benedict Cumberbatch is still somehow attached. You know, it's more it uh, it's more than that. I remember standing in front of um, we got the cover of Spider Man One Twenty Two in there, which is a Gil Kane, John Romita cover, um, and it's the death it's the death of the Green Goblin. It's one of the it's just mm. you know again part of that larger death of Gwen storyline mm-hmm. but one of the things that I noted that I hadn't noticed in reproduction but that you can see in the original is that Ramita has created the effect of motion lines um, on that original with a knife edge he's gone into mm-hmm. the, the he's inked the page and then he's gouged tiny little marks out of the ink with the edge of a scalpel or an exacto knife Wow! Um, and there are dozens and dozens of these tiny marks. I mean, it must have taken a really long time. No way. And and hmm. you can't see that until you're standing in front of it. Um, I remember pointing it out. I think it, uh, on the opening night, we had this incredible party, and um, hip hop legend DJ Pete Rock was the um, the the, uh, the supplied the music for the hmm. uh, after party. And so I gave him a personal tour of the show. And we were both standing there in front of this original, just blown away um, wow. because we both knew the book. And like, can you, you know, the, he, this guy went in there with with a knife and made these tiny little little marks. Now, and it, it's that sort of um, that that uh, at, at moments like that, um, it seems to me that the distinction between what people think of as fine art and commercial art really starts to break down. And right. you start to have what feels like a real museum experience, which doesn't have to be, which when it's good, doesn't involve things being very stuffy um, and dull. A good museum experience is one that will give you, I hope, some feelings of awe every now and again. That you'll actually feel um, just blown away by what human beings can do with their hands. That kind of ra- that raises a question in my mind. Actually, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, did you feel a sort of responsibility to make that point across? Some sort of honor the creators that haven't really gotten their due in mainstream popular culture, the recognition. Yeah, no, I really, um, uh, really wanted to do this. Obviously, for for Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko in particular, um, right, um, and. You know, I mean, it was a sort of, I mean, you give people a binary choice and they will end up ignorantly lining up on one side or the other based on all kinds of personal prejudices. You know, if you say, mm-hmm. you know, crunchy or smooth or, um, you know, John or Paul, you know, and, yeah. and there's a there's a version of that now that happens with Stan and Jack. Right. And um, I, I wanted to avoid that. I if insofar as that is possible um mm-hmm. i am not somebody who has uh, you know but i also knew stan didn't need me to um give him any credit right <laughs> right right he doesn't <laughs> um, need any help with that yeah yeah stan does <laughs> just doesn't need help with that exactly and um i, I wasn't going to pretend that that he he played no role 
mm-hmm. um, you know, there are there is a, there's sort of a generation of um, there's a particular species of Jack Kirby fan out there um, who seems to want to you know in some sort of weird um, uh, Oedipus kind of way they want to um, kill Stan Lee and marry Jack Kirby and um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And and there's just there's just no there's just no need for that, um, right. but there is some need to let the audience know. I mean, I, you know, I this happens all the time when I'm giving public talks to people who aren't necessarily comic fans. Everybody in the room has heard of Stan. Very few of them know Jack's name. That is a historic injustice. And right. to the extent that I can do something to to redress that balance, I I wanted to do it. Um, so uh, that that. There was a challenge here in that um, right now it's a little harder to get people to lend Kirby art than it mm-hmm. was maybe even two years ago, three years ago, when Charles and I worked on the big Kirby exhibition at, um, at Northridge, um, because the uh, the Kirby estate is is um, now going after collectors as well as. Um, uh, you know, having uh, I get now that now that the Kirby estate has settled with Marvel and Disney, um, they are trying to get pieces of the sale of any Kirby original that goes on sale now, mm-hmm. um, and this has made a number of collectors more reluctant to lend Jack stuff, uh, but we still found people who were who were willing to do it, and and so. Um, you know that was the, the, I knew in the end that with with Marvel's permission to reproduce anything that we wanted, it would be it, it would be okay. But uh, mm. you know, I, w- I would have liked to have had you know maybe five more Kirby originals than we ultimately did have in the show. Right. Um, and it's just very very challenging to get to get the highest end um, stuff right now. So I've is there been any? The the, sorry. Oh, so I was gonna say, is there any particular Kirby page in the collection that? You're glad it's in there, or some standouts, maybe? I mean, everything we have. Uh, okay. You know, we have a um, so a guy named um, Eric Roberts, who's a, got an incredible collection. He loaned us uh, early tales of suspense cover that shows Captain America in combat with the Black Panther. So it's a, oh. it's a oh, perfect cool. choice. This is a late 60s piece. Um, it's Cap and the Panther. Um, it's like so, so for the contemporary audience member, it really feels like a scene out of the Civil War movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the old school fan who knows, um, you know that history, they know that well. Here are these two characters from the pen of the guy who actually first drew them. Right. You know? um, so that was a beautiful one to have. Um, oh, let's see what else. Um, we actually have a page from the Fantastic Four showing the moon landing. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I think it was around oh. issue ninety-eight or so, mm-hmm. um, which I just thought was a, a beautiful opportunity to kind of draw a little circle there around the characters. The Fantastic Four were inspired to some degree by, uh, you know, that very first issue. Their origin story is motivated by um, Cold War kind of logic. I don't know if you've read it recently, but Sue says when when Ben Grimm says. He doesn't want to fly the experimental spaceship to the moon. Um, Sue says, "Do you want the commies to beat us? Don't <laughs> <laughs> have the commies get there ahead of us." So it's an experimental. You know, people forget this, but basically, it's an experimental moon launch that that is part. It's a space race era story, mm-hmm. and that's number one. And then 
almost 100 issues later, um, when we actually landed on the moon, which, you know, an event I'm sure Jack was following very closely, mm -hmm. he draws this tribute page where, you know, he actually has this, you know, uh, six panel sequence of Neil Armstrong getting out of the Apollo unit and putting his, uh, um, you know, planting his foot on the surface of the moon. And I thought, well, that's just a, such a great page if we, you know, yeah. to show. And, you know, it's gorgeously inked by Joe Sinnott. And we could at the same time make a nice point with it about the um, uh, Kirby's imagination always being inspired in some ways by what really, you know, I mean, you can imagine for somebody like him, it must have felt like science fiction becoming reality when the moon landing actually happened. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, if I could go back to a minute for what you were saying about uh, having a museum experience and, you know, just the idea of being in awe of these creators and these artists. Uh, so I come from an art history background, and I find it incredibly difficult to get art historians to take any comic book artists seriously as artists. Is there something about the discipline of English that you think is more receptive to comic books as a, a piece of, you know, culture and art that we take seriously and that we put in museums. And did you have any, I don't know, have you ever worked with art historians or museum curators who have an art history background? And, you know, how do you, how have you worked together with people? That's a really, um, it's an interesting question. Um, and it's a big sort of, it's, it's, it's quite, I think, a, a live question within comic studies right now because there, it, it, it seems to have been the case, as you point out, that departments of literature, um, comparative literature in English, have really embraced comics and so-called graphic novels in a way that the discipline of art history has not. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's less true in some ways just at my own institution in that um, one of the people most responsible for teaching um, manga and the history of manga happens to be located in our program of art history. But there are disciplinary questions. Um, if you read, if, if you're trained as a literary scholar, as I am, then you tend, then you bring a set of methodologies from, uh, from that discipline. And um, so there's a sensitivity, perhaps, to um, reading for reading allegory, which is, of course, mm -hmm. one of the things that superheroes are fun to. It's fun to do that with them. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, superheroes are big, um, big. Uh, Douglas Walk once said that superhero comics are the nearest thing we have these days to the novel of ideas, which I think is a a, mm -hmm. a, a, a beautifully audacious statement, and also nicely captures the. Um, what a literary scholar might indeed like about stories like this. They're big, they have these um, archetypal, symbolic kinds of concepts that happen to look like people um, that are engaged in um, uh, ruminations on both the attractions, the glamour, and the limitations of power, right? I mean, these are all things that you could imagine an English professor getting easily excited about and feeling like in some ways they know how to they know how to analyze that but those are entirely thematic ways of thinking they don't focus on um 
that, that, that those are you're interested in aspects of character, plot, narrative. Um, when you do that kind of analysis, you're not focusing on how these things look. And of course, it's 80, 90% of the appeal of superhero comics. I mean, if I'm reading Jack Kirby, fantastic, some of my favorite superhero comics ever are, is Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four work, um, particularly from, you know, when Joe Sinnott starts thinking it um, around issue 40 something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a sort of a 20, 30 issue run in the middle there, which for me is one of the all time pinnacles of, of the superhero genre in the comic book form. And um, it's not about uh, the, uh, the, the plots and stories are, are, are fun. And actually they have a, they can, they can, they're, they're deeper than people might initially or superficially recognize. You know, the Galactus trilogy, you can talk about the existential implications of the Galactus trilogy um, mm-hmm. and you're not wrong <laughs> to do so. But that isn't why I fell in love with this stuff when I was um, young. And uh, it was because they look amazing. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and they, and, and they have a, bar- I mean, Kirby has, I mean, there are art historical concepts here. You know, um, Scott Buchanan is an art historian who I think has done this kind of work. Somebody might, if you've never spoken to him, he might be somebody you, you want to talk to. He's an um, art historian, film historian. Um, he wears both hats at Stanford University. Um, he wrote a book called Matters of Gravity about um, a science fiction movie spectacle, which has a couple of uh, superhero chapters in it. He's also written a book on Mignola's Hellboy, which I think is a very mm-hmm. fine piece of, of criticism. And he understands um, the, both the importance of and the difficulty of talking about the visual. So that's a fairly high-placed art, historic, uh, art historian kind of guy who likes comics. Um, but yes, for some reason, departments of art history have, um, have been very slow compared to literature departments on this, uh, on the appreciation um, of comics. And then when they do embrace comics, they tend to um, be much more excited about the more auteurist, um, comics lit kinds of creators. Um, uh, Crumb um, is probably the comics artist who has been most embraced by the fine art world in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the first comics exhibitions in the U.S. were, uh, you know, the Portland Art Museum, for example, um, exhibited all of Crumb's Genesis uh, some years mm-hmm. ago, right? Um, or uh, I would say maybe uh, Alison Bechdel, Joe Sacco, um, mm-hmm. Dan Klaus, uh, Art Spiegelman, obviously. Um, these are the kinds of figures that um, the, the world of the museum has been a little quicker to embrace. Right. Uh, and I think that might be to do with a, um, maybe a less than fully acknowledged auteurist bias. All of mm-hmm. those creators are writer artists. They right. all right. Um, they they can be understood in terms of sort of traditional post romantic artistic values. Um, as they are individual visionaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whereas even the most auteury, if I can make a word up, uh, <laughs> of the superhero guys like Kirby and Ditko and um, let's say Frank Miller, I think would mm-hmm. also be equivalent. Um, 
They, uh, uh, Howard Chaykin might be another, although he doesn't really do superheroes, but these are sort of commercial comics creators who have what you might think of as a, as a distinctive enough vision as to be thought of as sort of comics auteurs, but they work within a, a factory system and it's mm -hmm. never just their work that you're seeing. Um, you know, it's always Miller and Janssen, it's always Kirby and half a dozen different inkers. Mm -hmm. um, Ditko liked to uh, uh, ink himself, but you know, Ditko's exceptional in every way. I mean, <laughs> even, the, the, even the period of, of um, uh, the period of work that he does, that, in a way, Ditko is the most auteurist, if you think about it, because he, he right. kind of tries to invent alternative comics before they even exist. Mm -hmm. um, once he well, after he leaves Marvel in the '60s and starts doing his um, strange homegrown, um, you know, you guys are familiar with this material, right? That late Dicko right. stuff, Avenging World, and all that. Kind I of mean, we may be, but our <laughs> listeners maybe aren't. <laughs> I mean, and by listeners, I also mean me. So um, <laughs> if you if you I mean I, I, if you have a l brief explanation under that stuff, I'd love to hear it. Well, yeah, Ditko's, Ditko's really fascinating from this point of view because it was like he tried to to the, to invent an alternative comics market before the direct market existed because he was frustrated with what he could do within mainstream comics. What makes Ditko different from the other auteurists is that he's this um, extreme libertarian Ayn Rand sort of right-winger mm -hmm. as opposed to being... So he didn't fit into the underground movement. Um, the kinds of people that were looking for an alternative comics audience in the 60s and 70s, um, it, uh, you know, the distribution mechanism for things like Zap Comics um, was uh, head shops, right? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, if you, if you wanted to sell comics that weren't superhero or genre comics and that dealt with adult subject matter in the 60s and 70s, then you were an underground cartoonist and you and your work probably sold primarily through head shops. And that's not the audience that would have picked up what Ditko was doing, because Ditko was doing these really kind of extreme right wing weird genre pieces. Mm -hmm. um, the late Ditko's uh, the later Ditko work, Ditko's still alive obviously, but um, Ditko's later work, it reminds me of a kind of um, they're like libertarian chick tracts, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so, you know, um, it's very politically unfashionable. But to sort of close, to finish the point that I, I guess the reason I started talking about this is that um, you could see in Ditko a kind of uh, highly individualistic vision, mm -hmm. um, a, a romantic notion almost of the artist doing his own thing and pushing against the limits of what a commercial medium will allow him to do. And the fact that he, he also happened to do it from a rather right-wing perspective, which means that he doesn't get maybe talked about as much as some of the, the um, other alternative um, uh, auteurist types. Right. Um, but, you know, he's doing something um, that our historians would recognize as uh, um, the highly individual uh, sensibility of an artist at work there. Whereas someone like Kirby, it's harder to recognize that because Kirby was really trying to make uh, um, money in, in a commercial medium. He ne Kirby never lost faith in commercial comics, even right. when the audience left him, even when things like you know Devil Dinosaur 
or the Eternals didn't you know, really set the world on fire. They mm-hmm. look incredible now, I think, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Devil Dinosaur, I think, is huge now uh, with uh, with Moon Girl. And, uh, you know, they sell them at, like, the book fairs at, at elementary schools. Yeah, no, right. no. That, I mean, it came, there, there was a ni- there's a nice sort of reinvention. Mm-hmm. Um, but those things look amazing, too. I mean, the double-page spreads from Kirby's Devil Dinosaur books in the late 70s is not the work of a man who's past his prime. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the work of somebody who's continuing to push at the, at the limits of what the medium can do. But his sense of it was, um, you know, it's like the difference between Led Zeppelin and Fugazi or something, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and, the, and the hipsters are always going to like Fugazi more. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, but this is, but, you know, at the end of the day, I that yeah, okay, I just said it. Jack Kirby is the Led Zeppelin of... <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, episode that's our episode title right there that's um, perfect yeah <laughs> so okay i i bet ben has some opinions about using tape on your comic books oh no <laughs> so okay so this is this is an ongoing debate i hear at i read comic books of how you should store and take care of your comics. And we, we did do a whole episode a while ago, I want to say a year and a half ago, about like the proper quote-unquote art historian way of storing your comic books. And Tia gave us a beautiful breakdown of that. But recently we've been talking about, you know, do you use the pre-sealed bags for your modern comic books? Do you tape? If you do tape, do you use two stripes of tape or one stripe of tape? <laughs> um, what kind of bags do you use? So on and so forth. Do you have thoughts on this? I guess that's, that's what you were getting at, right, Tia? Yeah, we, we have, I think we should just pull everyone that we talk to. But here's a person who actually handles, you know, all kinds of comic books from original art and museum quality, like, you know, first issues <laughs> yeah. to, you know, stuff he probably bought last week. So let's hear, yeah. hear it. Yeah. Um, so I don't worry about bagging and boarding new books at all. Mm. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, I read, I mean, I might, just to sort of protect them in a, a, a in a crude storage kind of way, like I might put multiple books into a single bag um, mm. if it's modern books, just to save mm. money on the bags, okay. because because they're modern books, and um, unless you're one of those, unless you are a slabbing type of person, mm-hmm. um, and you really are going to try and you know in future sell your copy of Tanahisi Coates' Black Panther number one in a nine point eight or something like that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. With my, in my opinion, with modern books, it doesn't matter. I just read right. them, and they're all they're all printed on glossy paper that's going to outlive me. And <laughs> um, and and so you know. Now, when you're talking about um, books that are printed on um, wood pulp. Um, you know, anything published before the Baxter paper era of the mid-80s, you actually, what you have there is just from a conservation point of view, you have a ticking time bomb, and there are all kinds of debate. and I have agonized over this. I would love actually to, <laughs> if you could send me a link here to where you talked about this, I would love to get the background, because I use everything that I can to try and slow the degradation of the acid-filled paper. So I mm-hmm. use, you know, those... Paper inserts. Um, gosh, what's that stuff called? You know the mu- uh, um, Oh yeah, the microfiber. I use microfiber paper um, in between the cover and the um, the newsprint um, mm. to try and avoid you know the acids leaching quite so fast. I put everything in mylar with acid-free boards. 
And the jury is out for me as to whether you seal the, the bag with tape um, or whether you uh, leave it open. Um, no. pe some people say that okay. if you seal these things too tight, you create a microclimate, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> which could actually accelerate the, the aging process. Oh, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have... I've no, I've no idea on the science of this. Really, I think, I think it's not. I think people really don't know. <laughs> In all of the museum print uh, storage places I've seen, it's usually folders and solander boxes. Mm. Yes, yes. Or like a folder with the with the little cl closure that you like wind the string around. No, I. I like I can hear all of the archivists and registrars crying about tape anywhere near anything <laughs> paper. <laughs> yeah, I certainly I think, and they and they don't use mylar; they they just use acid-free. I mean, this was never for comic books. This would be more for drawings and pamphlets and and illustrations and things like that. But yeah, no, yeah. I haven't. I think seen that's mylar. probably correct. You know, I think if the books, I think all, what the mylar does is it makes everything look nicer. And mm -hmm. if you are regularly right. handling your individual books, it probably makes sense. From the point of view of preserving the life of the books, however, I doubt it, it helps that much. I think what helps is um, climate control. Um, and, you know, again, when you're dealing with wood pulp and uh, so, you know, if you're really worried about this kind of thing, probably having your books in um, museum quality archival storage boxes, which don't have any acid in the boxes, Mm -hmm. Those blue boxes that are not your short, your white standard comic book store, <laughs> right. short box right. in other words, but those blue acid-free boxes, um, and you've got everything stored so that the spines won't roll. Um, Frankly, even the staples are terrible. Yeah, no, the staples are terrible. That's why you want the climate control, and you right. want to have these things in a in a storage room um, in the dark. Um, with a sort of an ideal temperature and uh, and a, a dehumidifier, mm. um, you know, if you if you really want these things to last f forever, then that's that's what you've got to do. But you know, I don't know. I think slabbing is evil. I've got strong feelings <laughs> about that. Right. Okay, right. Well, this this sounds like it could be a whole part episode two. in itself. I mean, we could <laughs> yeah. we could do a, a part two of this. I'd love to. Ben, we might have to have you back for that. I'd love to come back for that. That's yeah. like really down in the weeds, nerdy stuff. That, hey, that's what we're <laughs> all great. about here. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's <laughs> we're kind of running out of tape here. I don't want to take up all of your time today, Ben. This has been a fantastic discussion. I love hearing about all this stuff. I wish we had four more hours of recording time and all that to go over it. But we've got to wrap up. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Before we go, where can people find you to, if they need to contact you, if they want to contact you or hear about your stuff and all the, all the things you've got going on? Sure. Um, so if you just, there are, there are several Ben Saunders on the internet and they're all much more manly than me. Um, <laughs> so you could say, if you find the Arctic Explorer or the, um, the UFC fighting champion, um, <laughs> then, then that's Those are not your alter egos. Yeah, neither of those are me. Um, and they, but if you, if you, so you need to add some kind of modifier to my name to make sure that. Or there's also a, um, there's a singer from Denmark who's um, covered in glorious tattoos, um, <laughs> who also has my name. Also not so those you. Are the, okay. Also not me. Uh, and so there's still put, time for you. You could get covered yeah. in tattoos. You could reclaim it. <laughs> I've I've come this far. Um, I I think. Um, 
if you just Google my name, Ben Saunders, and add comics, you will find me right away. Yeah, that's that's what I did this morning. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that 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 will lead you, or you know, if you want to find out about the Marvel show, my name plus Marvel. Uh, or my name plus comic studies will bring you to the University of Oregon comic studies page. And uh, we should mention uh, how long is this exhibit open so people can go see it in oh, Seattle? It's, it's there till January. And, okay, great. Um, and yeah, and it's we, we're actually adding some pieces in, in just a few weeks. We have um, Gentle Giant have created life-size sculptures of um, larger than life, actually, of uh, Hulk, Thor, and um, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. Oh wow! Um, wow! And uh, yeah, the Hulk is going to be eight foot tall. So wow. <laughs> that's awesome. Awesome. And so that's in Seattle, Washington, at the Museum of Pop Culture, I believe. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So if you happen to find yourself in Seattle in the next, you know, nine months or so, um, go check that out. <laughs> Uh, you can follow everyone else on the show on Twitter. You can follow Tia at Portrait of Madam X. You can follow Paul at Ohi Polly. You can follow me at Mike Rappin. And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we post all sorts of things on the internet. And we post polls every Sunday, such as this week's poll, How Does Spider Jerusalem Take His Coffee? <laughs> uh, you can also find our Goodreads group. That's where uh, we're all discussing comics we've read, along with some fans over there. I think 300 people, maybe more, are on that group. Almost uh, this Almost 400, wow. So we have weekly threads and different uh, conversations. This week's thread is all about Solo, the movie, the uh, Star Wars story. So the spoilers over there if you check that out. And then you can also find our uh, podcast on the internet at our website, ircbpodcast.com. We have show notes, a pronunciation guide for hard to pronounce names, and uh, merch you can buy, t-shirts, our zine, stickers, and all that stuff. Please rate the show, subscribe. More listeners is our uh, goal here. We can get more things out there for you. You can email us at ircb at destroythesibe.org. Infinity Shred does all the music for the show. They're the best band in the universe. We can't thank them enough for letting us use their music. Xander is the king of secret handshakes, and he also edits the show. I want to say thank you to Paul and Tia. Extra special thanks to Ben for being on the show, and thank you to the listeners. Until next time, try a new comic and be positive about it. <laughs>